3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, Today is Tuesday, the 13th of July, and it is 7am. My name is Fook, and today we're joined by Genevieve, Evie, and Kanagi. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are we this morning? Pretty good. A bit lacking in sleep, but otherwise pretty good. Like more so than usual. I was up watching a lot of sports yesterday. So the, the soccer. Um, the soccer, and also because of all the coronavirus restrictions, our football team were on last night in Perth mm-hmm. from like eight p.m. Oh my god! That's <laughs> late. Right? That's late. It's it's late, and also like especially like I need to need to get up early today, and I'm like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but we won, so that Yay. was great. Yeah, I also watched the soccer. Um, <laughs> I'm not like the biggest soccer fan, but I think just because of all of the excitement and oh, like yeah. the fanfare and it's stuff so that was easy going to on. get sucked in. <laughs> I know, and I had this like I was living with my brother, and we like used to watch it together, and I just used to comment like stupid like why are they doing (laughs) why are they just on the ground like nothing happened to them (laughs) and like the dramatic falls I just find it so entertaining oh it's great it's so dramatic like they'll (laughs) they'll fall and then they'll like do this like spasm like to just kind of add to the dramatic nature it's just extra funny to me because it's like essentially a non-contact sport and they do way more like carrying on about like an ankle kicked into someone else's ankles like yeah rest yeah (laughs) um yeah it seems very strategic in a lot of cases yeah i have a lot of um italian friends who did not go to work yesterday oh my i live everyone see the photos from ligon street it's great it looks so much fun yeah i live right near ligon street and i could hear not not even that close to be fair and i could hear horns honking all day and i was trying to avoid the news to like not see who won <laughs> and then I was just like this like, clearly stepped foot on the street and there's this huge Italian flag being like waved out of this car it's I like, love it I just saw a picture of like these two guys carrying cannoli license plates in their Ferrari going down wow. like on the street yeah. <laughs> I love that ah <sighs> Um, well, what do we have on the show today? Carnegie, did you want to tell us a bit about your interview? Yeah, so I will be interviewing Liz Walsh, who is from the Victorian Socialists, and um, about a month ago helped organise a rally in Footscray in support of safe injecting rooms. Cool. And Evie, your interview at uh, later at 8 o'clock this 
Yeah, so we have a really special interview. Um, I will be chatting to Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea, who both wrote a book and were, in fact, um, two key players in securing um, abortion safe access zones in Victoria and subsequently similar laws in um, other places in Australia as well. And a, a lot of their fight, and especially Dr. Susie Allenson's fight over 20 years, led to um, decriminalising abortion in Victoria. So really big interview. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that will be such an interesting interview. Well, um, we'll be back right after this. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Just quickly wanted to mention that uh, today the weather is supposed to be partly cloudy and 15 degrees. Um, Okay, well, speaking of uh, the football or soccer match between England and Italy, um, I heard there was some, yeah... Mm. Unple- really unpleasant, uh, really awful things that were happening in response to, um, I guess, England's performance or yeah, yeah, this some of the is players. yeah, this is really heartbreaking stuff, especially because, I mean, the match itself was really good. Really, they like went into a penalty shootout, and um, both teams played really well. Um, but unfortunately, there has been some racially charged uh, comments and violence that has happened in England towards uh, some of the um, uh, black players on the English side team. Um, England players Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho and Bakaya Saka. Can I just mention that Bakaya Saka is 19? I know. Yeah, he's so just yeah. basically a kid yeah, in, like, not... the highest pressure game yeah. of his life. And he played most of the game as well. Anyway, there was a penalty shootout um, after extra time and Italy won the penalty shootout, but much of the blame has gone towards these black players um, where there's been, yeah, racially... Um, charged comments and pretty much just abuse um, on them following the game. Um, the England's, uh, England's Football Association has uh, come out saying that uh, the toughest punishments possible for people identified as having racially abused members of the national side uh, after its defeat to Italy. Um, it also said that the FA strongly condemns all forms of discrimination and is appalled by the online racism that has been aimed at some of our um, some of their England players on social media. 
Um, they also said that they could not be clearer that anyone behind such disgusting behaviour is not welcome in following the team and they will do all that they can to support the players affected while urging the toughest punishments possible for anyone responsible. Um, this isn't, I guess, new to mm. this um, particular sport, I mean to all sports, but uh, even in April the FA alongside uh, quite a lot of other leagues um, in England boycotted social media for four days in response to the continued abuse of uh, black players. Yeah. Um, One thing that the UK Migration Museum did, um, they had a campaign um, called England Without Immigration and it's this really effective thing where they've got a, a soccer pitch with all the players in their spots and crossing out their names to see what it would look like if there wasn't immigration in England. Pretty much the Mm -hmm. entire team is blanked out. Yeah. Um, You know, everyone talks like, you know, people who use, use racial abuse or try to pretend that it doesn't exist in sport always say, oh, why is sport political now? Sport's always been political. Mm-hmm. Um, and insofar as you always have people from different cultures, um, from different races who are in sport, it's always going to be political. For sure. Yeah, and it's not, like, isolated to sport. Like, it's tied to everything, right? It's like you receive Sport is part of your culture. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> racial abuse in sport – um, linked to the healthcare system, linked to education, linked to policies. Um, it's it's not isolated. It's all connected and systemic. So I feel like it's great that, you know, there are people and organisations taking a stand, but there does need to be a more, I don't know, bigger mm-hmm. shift, a bigger, yeah. It is honestly... I, it is a relief to see like large organisations, and so so far as you can say anything positive about Boris Johnson, um, mm. even he said, <laughs> you know, it, it has to be it's it is deplorable and it shouldn't be you know it should be met with the harsh, harshest possible punishment. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, that and being said, like, he's responsible for that the culture that in which this happens. Yeah, mm. and there's a there's a weird element in sport where. It's almost as if um, players of colour and often they're um, from an African background are kind of paraded in a mm. way, like even mm. in basketball oh, yes. or like rugby. Um, and then when it comes down to it, like there was an example headline here, which the literal headline said, which I think has now been deleted, but there's screenshots online saying three black players failed in the penalty shootout, which lost England 3-2 against Italy. Yeah. Like yeah. So when they lose, when they don't perform... Mm. It's uh, about the their race. Is, yeah, it's about their race. So. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, this happens with Indigenous players in yeah, Australia yeah. too. Um, you have to understand the context in which they're used, um, you know, to show how progressive sporting teams can be. But then when it comes down to failure, it is like, you know, sometimes they do get singled out and abused for their race. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen that. Adam <laughs> Goods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great example. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it, it does take flashpoints like this to really change the conversation and mm. hopefully something, you know, really constructive comes out of it. But it will be interesting to see what does come out of that. Mm. Um, I guess continuing uh, with sport, uh, Ngarigo woman Ashbadi won Wimbledon uh, over the weekend, which was very exciting. Yes. <laughs> um, incredible. It's just incredible to see, you know, a woman who, um, like, it, I know a lot of tennis, like, is when you talk about the player's journey, they always show, like, you know, playing from, like, a very young age and winning at a very young mm. age. 
Um, Ash Barty has an incredible sporting career that has gone from cricket mm-hmm. to golf to, you know, uh, several sports in which he's played at like a high, high level. And now to go to tennis, it's, and, you know, to win Wimbledon. Um, you know, also like continuing in the tradition of Yvonne Goulagong. Mm. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's yeah. just a, such a positive, wonderful thing to have. Also really enjoyed Margaret Court's sour face when she won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that side by side photo of Ash Barty and Yvonne Goulagong. Yeah. With their Wimbledon, um, what do you call it? The dresses? No, or the I meant the trophy. I oh, the plate. Like the yes. Plate. Yeah. <laughs> she did wear a similar dress. Yeah. Which was really lovely. Yeah, I thought that was really nice. Um, I, I mean, any other sports news? This has been a very <laughs> heavy sports I feel like we should have gotten section. some sports games. <laughs> I know, I yeah. know. Um, I know I usually don't like watch a lot of sport, but I did watch an AFL match over the weekend. That was exciting. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I feel like I'm like heavily involved in yeah, yeah which one one match, you one know, match. Like, and I'm, like, yeah. I'm right there. I know everything. There was is it to the know Footscray about Dogs by any chance? No, it was, that was tragic. <laughs> Let's not bring that. <laughs> it was St Kilda and Brisbane. Oh, okay. We, we, it's like that's a random one. <laughs> no, it's because my friend, my friend goes for Brisbane, and my partner goes for St Kilda. Okay, so that's not so random. random. Not so random. Um, but yeah, your your face just then, Evie, was yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really, it was really great. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, well, I guess the the other you know uh, big news that's um, come about recently. Um, in terms of international global news, is what happened in Haiti. Um, Genevieve, did you want to yeah, kick off that discussion? I've been reading about this the last couple of days, and I mean it's pretty big. So if you have, if you've been avoiding the news for the last week, um, the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moisi, was assassinated on the seventh of July. Uh, the news also confirmed that the country's prime minister Claude Joseph who said Moisey uh, was attacked by a group of armed men at his home uh, and Moisey's wife was also uh, seriously injured in the attack. Um, According to Haitian investigators, a group of two dozen mercenaries, including two US Haitian citizens and a number of Colombians, several of whom were former soldiers, uh, stormed Moisey's villa pretending to be a US Drug Enforcement Administration raid overpowering staff and security. I mean, this comes at a very interesting time for Haiti. There's been protests for the last couple years um, protesting against Moisey, mm-hmm. um, wanting him to be ousted. There's been a lot of uh, public unrest about his um, presidency. Um, so the fact that he was assassinated has uh, come under I mean, a lot of speculation in terms of why and who. and um, But I think it is important um, to note that, you know, Moisey did have a lot of critics. He was accused of corruption, autocratic tendencies and implicated in political violence involving the country's gangs. Um, so a lot of people have described Moisey's presidency as kind of wanting to change the constitution. He refused to step down um, this year, which was at the end of his presidency, which should have been five years, refused to step down. Um, he's been accused of setting up like a police state. He's also interestingly had the backing of the U.S. Uh, 
right up until this year, but the Biden administration backed Moisey, the Trump administration backed Moisey uh, back when um, there was a uh, put in place a new president um, by Obama. <laughs> um, the pre uh, the person that became in power after that leader was put in place by intervention was Moisey. So it kind of makes sense that the US Mm. supported him. Um, But I mean, it is an interesting one. A lot of people have said maybe this was a coup, an attempted coup. Um, But there is a lot of speculation in terms of a lot of people have their fingers in Haiti. The French, the US, Mm. the UN um, has a huge presence there. Um, which has come under a lot of critique as well. Mm. Um, but, I mean, for anyone that knows the history of Haiti, it's a really d- devastating and awful story. They're one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, also interesting, they were um, the first uh, s- uh, like slave state to revolt and to actually um, successfully revolt and set up a... Um, nation and interestingly I was reading that uh, they refused I think still to this day that foreigners and specifically I think um, white people cannot own land in Haiti Um, so it's like pretty incredible like it's a it's a black state and Mm. all of this but I mean it's been um, absolutely dragged through the mud from uh, international intervention Um, A lot of Haitian academics and activists have called it an occupation by the US um, and the UN. The UN has been accused of um, bringing cholera to the country, Uh, numerous instances of rape and sexual abuse, including of girls as young as 11, also just um, uh, use of violence, opening fire on villages. Um, And so, yeah, it's... This assassination has, uh, is anticipated to send uh, Haiti more further into turmoil, but um, the acting prime minister has asked for US intervention and asked for US troops and the FBI to investigate, but a lot of Haitian um, citizens and activists uh, do not want them to come and mm. intervene. Um, so it's an interesting story to follow, um, pretty awful. I'm not sure if anyone else has read it much about it. Just a, a little bit. Um, I was reading a little bit about Moisey, and I thought it was interesting that he his background is in business. Like, he's mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. Um, and I think a lot of Haitians kind of backed him, or the ones who did at the start, um, was because he promised wealth. Um, and that's, I think, like globally, that's a little bit of a common tactic in countries. Even India has a similar trajectory. Like, um, And then... Yeah, people kind of... Because you want to see your country succeed globally, mm-hmm. and that's a real big push, I think, for people. And then, yeah, it kind of leaves a lot of space for corruption because mm-hmm. um, you're putting your faith in someone for one reason. And, yeah, I thought I thought his background was quite interesting. Yeah, I also did a bit <clears throat> of reading about Haiti's um, history. Um, there's a great... Uh, article on the conversation that summarizes you know a few key points in the country's history and and links uh provides links to other articles that delve a bit deeper into it but 
yeah, you were saying, um, Genevieve, that Haiti successfully revolted against their colonizer, France, back in the 1800s. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm just going to read out this little section from the conversation, uh, this summary, because I thought it was really interesting and absurd. <laughs> um, so between 1814 and 1825, France sent repeated delegations to Haiti to negotiate with its new leaders about restoring some formal relationship with France. Um, when that failed, King Charles in 1825 decreed that France would recognise Haitian independence, but only if the new country paid France the exorbitant price of 150 million francs. The sum was, uh, and I'm now quoting um, uh, Professor Marlene um, Doe, who's uh, the Professor of African Diaspora Studies at the University of Virginia. Um, so the sum was meant to compensate the French colonists for their lost revenues from slavery. Yeah, okay. how insane is that? And they're still paying it back to this day. Yeah. They're still paying it. Yeah. I, um, I just, it, it's, <laughs> I'm speechless. It yeah. defies belief that, like, you know, that you could have that kind of loans in good conscience. I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I also just, before we wrap up this story, just want to mention um, in terms of like why you might be asking like why is the US there like what do they want with Haiti mm -hmm. like what does France still want with Haiti like what do these powers want with Haiti well like in terms of setting up a um, naval base in the Caribbean uh, Haiti also has a rich amount of minerals they're also quite um, have notoriously been quite friendly with Venezuela um, so in terms of uh, infiltrate um implementing some diplomatic control over the country in such a key area um especially being so close to cuba and um all of those countries um it is a strategic move for the u.s to be interested in haiti it's not it's not an accident that they're there it's not an act of humanitarian intervention anymore it is an act of i think blatantly occupation um so it's strategic within yeah. the region yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I also wanted to mention, if you were interested in um, reading more about Haiti, you should definitely read some of the work of uh, Dr. Jemima Pierre, who is a Haitian U.S. Uh, citizen um, who was part of the Black Alliance for Peace um, organization. So she has quite a brilliant um, – she writes brilliantly about the issue and um, – can definitely look up her name mm, just one last thing sorry. <laughs> um there's just so much to talk about but i think it would um yeah i think you you sort of have to mention as well the devastating earthquakes well that happened in 2010 sort of on top of everything else that um haiti has survived and resisted against they there was also um in 2010 a, a huge earthquake um that killed um more than 300,000 people um and uh, yeah, left 1.5 million people instantly homeless. Mm. Um, so mm. I think that's also important to think or, yeah, remember and read up about when when um, looking into Haiti. Yeah. And it puts it into context, doesn't totally, it? Totally, mm. yeah. Okay, well, uh, we'll be back with a song right after this. Yeah. 
online and nationwide right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Next up, we've got a track called Lost You by Snow Allegra, who is an Iranian-Swedish R&B artist who describes her style as cinematic soul. She's just released a new album called Temporary Highs in the Violet Skies, and this is the lead single. This is Lost You.
trees, beach views, ordinary day. All I wanna hear is in the visions on replay. Sit right next to you, you. I try not to show how I feel about you, thinking we should wait. But we don't really want to, I just wanna get away. I sit right next to you, you. I don't wanna kiss you, yeah, I just wanna And that was Lost You by Snow Allegra. And next up, we are going to be speaking with Liz Walsh. Uh, Liz is from the Victorian Socialists and uh, recently organised a rally in Footscray in support of safe injecting rooms. Um, and we have her on the line now. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, thank you. Um, so, as I was saying, you helped organize a rally in Footscray, I think it was about a month ago, um, in support of safe injecting rooms. Can you tell us a bit about how this came about? Right, yeah, the rally was a response to um, a right-wing mobilization, actually. Uh, Bernie Finn, who's a hard-right liberal MP in the Western Metro, he organized a community rally against a even a discussion of a supervised injecting facility. And um, we thought it was really important to show that he didn't speak for the community. Um, and he actually had the support of the mayor and another um, MP as well. So we thought it was important to show grassroots support for a healthcare approach to issues of substance um, addiction and, and that, these, that people who have drug addictions need support and dignity and care, not um, to be stigmatised and criminalised. Yeah, absolutely. And I was at that rally um, and the turnout was really great. And there seemed to be quite a lot of community support. And I think there was a counter rally on the Wednesday before. Um, Yeah. And and I think that, yeah, the balance of how many people did come on the Saturday to the rally and support, um, it felt like there was a lot of community support. But yeah, I have read that, you know, the local politicians who are speaking out against um, having this kind of say that there's not enough data to support it. Um, you know, they're saying it's not financially viable, it's going to affect local businesses. Um, what would your response be to that? Well, I would say that um, the data is pretty clear in terms of the positive impact of supervised injecting facilities. So um, Putscray is one of the places where there's a high rate of ambulance call-outs for issues of overdose relating to heroin, um, it's the 
fourth highest um, outside of uh, Yarra, um, sort of Melbourne CBD, and also Brimbank. Then it goes to the Maribyrnong LGA. So, uh, so we definitely need a um, supervised injecting facility, and the data shows that these these, these facilities save lives. So, um, if people are concerned about people um, overdosing, loved ones um, dying. Um, then, yeah, very much the, the supervised injecting facilities are critical. They are not very expensive facilities, actually. They're pretty simple facilities. They um, are basically just having some medical staff on hand to supervise uh, the injection. And it means that if there's overdoses, there's naloxone right there or oxygen um, so that people uh, are not alone um, and what could be reversed very easily um, uh, often doesn't happen when people inject out in public because they don't have those facilities on hand. Um, the other thing about the injecting facilities that's so important is the um, all of the health and social services that you can wrap around people um, who use the facilities. So um, there's councils on hand, um, there's a capacity to refer people to other um, AOD services, to legal services, to housing services, uh, family violence services. So, you know, p- people who inject drugs on the streets are some of the most vulnerable people and are definitely in need of being connected up to support. So that's that's also what's so important about these facilities and it doesn't cost very much. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in terms of the whole question about local business, I mean, that's the big scare campaign is that putting a facility uh, in Putsgrey would uh, destroy... Uh, local businesses, and I think that that's just um, total misinformation. Uh, the people who uh, in, inject drugs uh, do it already, and um, we need to provide a safe place for them off the street and um, in a place where they uh, can get some support. Yeah, I think I find it interesting that in a situation like this, um, the definition you know, of community kind of changes. It's... Um, mm. These pe- like people who use drugs are a part of the community, but when these conversations happen, it almost feels like they're excluded from that definition. Totally, yeah, they're they're totally stigmatized and um, dehumanized. So yeah, it's as if these people are the undeserving, don't deserve healthcare, they don't deserve to have their lives saved. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty appalling um, part of the, the whole debate. Yeah, and there's this crass sort of notion that, you know, if you're making that decision, then that's on you. Mm. And it's, um, yeah, I found at the rally especially, um, there were a couple of people who spoke from lived experience um, of having used drugs for a number of years and being clean on and off um, and how much these spaces have helped them, especially the women who spoke who said, you know, it's women have their own set of risks. Um mm-hmm going down alleyways, um, you know, it's not safe. There's the risk of sexual assault. Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak a bit to that? Well, yeah, the, that was some of the most powerful elements of the rally, having people with lived experience speak. And um, while it is the case that uh, the, there's actually more men who inject than women, there's a lot of women who do inject drugs. And, um, and like with everybody, there's uh, a huge amount of, you know, backstory to how people got to the place that they are, um, involving often questions of family violence that led to 
homelessness and a whole um, range of other issues, mental health issues, loss of jobs and so on. So, um, so yeah, it's a very sort of complex and um, difficult situation that uh, that people are in. Um, and certainly, yeah, injecting on the streets is incredibly dangerous and more dangerous for women. So, yeah, a lot of um, women who use drugs have talked about how important the supervised injecting facilities have been for providing a clean space and a safe space um, for them to do that. Um, and then also all the services that they get um, connected up to, um, like the family violence services. Um, but, of course, yeah, like any kind of facility like the drug injecting facility has to be teamed up with a whole range of other expansion of, of, of um, services like public housing and crisis accommodation. Without those things, it's sort of pretty... It's limited how, how much the supervised injecting facilities can help. It's just one sort of part of a bigger puzzle. Yeah, and I think um, some people are kind of blatantly ignoring some of the statistics out there, especially when it comes to the most recent one, the North Richmond uh, injecting facility, which uh, study after study has found it's doing its job. Um, But there still appears to be a lot of media around how it's kind of this honeypot now for uh, people who have substance abuse. But um, pretty much the statistics and the numbers are that it's saved lives, it's... um, Uh, offering a space for most vulnerable drug users like women and homeless and unemployed uh, people or people that have been to prison. Um, So it does appear to be this fear-mongering by the media. That's right. And actually another study came out um, which showed that the overwhelming majority of people who use the North Richmond facility live in the area. Um, And to the extent that people travel, they might have travelled from Fitzroy. It's not the case that um, people travelling all across the state to access this facility. Most often, people uh, inject drugs very close to where they score. So, um, like that's the, the reality is that in North Richmond, there's been a massive issue with, um, you know, with drugs and people having drug addictions. So that's why the facility is where it is. It's where there's the greatest need. I I, I feel like there's a lot of. Um regular myth-making when it comes to uh, injection rooms, that every time that there is a new um, trial set up in any particular place, the same things come through again and again. Um, you have people in the area, not people who, in like, you know, who are newcomers to the area who say, well, um, crime has increased or, you know, the perception of crime often is very different to the reality. Um, and a lot of it seems to come from the way it is reported in the media and just the the way in which crime statistics or perceptions of crime are conveyed. And, yeah, like, you know, uh, crime in Victoria is still on a downward trend and yet you still have, um, you know, the kind of fear-mongering campaigns of, of what people perceive to be higher rates of crime in those injecting room areas. How do you... Um, counteract those kind of narratives. Is it just is it just a matter of just constantly having to go to more people and you know show them the reality? Yeah, I mean part of it is just misbusting. Um, I mean the the right wing media, the Murdoch press, are always going to be pretty scurrilous and um, fearmonger and yeah, totally spread lies. So you know that's no surprise. But part of 
I guess the way to counter that is both talk the truth and also organise the community. Um, and there are plenty of people that do know that supervised injecting facilities are key to um, saving lives, that they're a key healthcare measure. So the point is that we need to not just have those people atomised and passive and just thinking the right things, but actually organised to counteract that pressure. Um, and it is possible. So after a big campaign, they did get the North Richmond injecting facility. It wasn't easy. It did involve the community coming out. Um, and yes, there can be a minority, often, yeah, as you, you sort of indicated, part of the gentrifiers who, um, you know, just uh, basically want to see other, you know, white, wealthy people in the area. Um, and yeah, they, they, they obviously can be a problem, but it's also, yeah, there's a lot of people, it's often polarised, so it's a question of can you, can you counteract that with your own um, pressure from below? Um, and, yeah, I mean, a lot of campaigns often you know, speak to the various actors that can be hesitant or have questions, concerns, um, and that's useful. But, yeah, for me, the, the question is, can there be a campaign built? Yeah, and I think that comes back to the idea of community, which um, is particularly strong in the Western suburbs, I feel, having lived there. Um, and I think that some of this conversation also ties into the general stigma of the Western suburbs and Footscray in particular. Um, like, for example, there was that police stop and search that happened in Footscray and I think Dandenong. Um, and it was clear that it was targeting a specific suburb. Um, and, yeah, I think that the whole conversation, it, it plays into the class elements of this conversation as well. Um, you know, the idea of migrant communities living in the area. Yeah, and I think that all plays into the bigger conversation and the fear-mongering as well. Um, if our listeners wanted to know a bit more about supporting this initiative or just, you know, the benefits of having a safe injecting room or get involved, um, where can they go, Liz? Well, uh People can look up a number of organisations. We've put out a lot of information and research. So um, I would recommend looking up Harm Reduction Victoria. They have a lot of fact sheets out there. Also the North Richmond um, Medical Supervised Injecting Facility. Um, their website also carries quite a lot of information, and, and uh, including things like the report um, into the sort of review into the facility, the important um uh, work that it's been doing. So there's sort of places to go if you want to research a little bit more. Um, I mean, the, we're hoping in the Victorian Socialists in the Western Suburbs to continue pressing in support of supervised injecting facilities and just generally harm reduction services out West. Um, so, yeah, if people want to get involved with the campaign, they should um, contact us as well. And, yeah, we're sort of planning our next step. Great. Um well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Liz. That was really informative, um, and we will link to some of those resources on our website later today. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, so that was Liz Walsh from the Victorian Socialists um, talking about safe injecting facilities in the West, and we will be right back after this. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons 
provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Band School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enroll at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. It's 7.45am. We're now going to play some um, audio from Women on the Line, which is a um, feminist current uh, current affairs program uh, hosted by women and gender diverse um, people on Mondays from 8.30 to 9am. And um, this week's episode, um, I think, was a great... um, follow up to what we what the what discussions we were having here on Tuesday breakfast last week when we were speaking about um or we were speaking to um Dr. Chelsea Wadigo about um castoral feminism indigenous sovereignty um racism colonization everything really um but we are going to listen to the first part of the episode um, where Priya, who also is a host on Thursday Breakfast, interviews uh, Kerry Klim, a Kukuyalanji and Koko Lama Lama woman living in Mianjin. And um, she spoke to Priya about being subject to and fighting institutional racism while working in the non-for-profit sector and the lasting toll that um, this has taken on her health and well-being. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Ah, yeah, Yundu Yalada, Priya, Nagubori Keri, Gugu Yalanji, Yala, Koka, Lama Lama, Nagumi Anjan, Bandadei, Turubu, Yala, Yagra. So, uh, as I'm introducing myself, I'm acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which I'm yarning to you today in Mianjin, which is the Turubu and Yagra people. To sort of start out, could you tell us a bit about your own background, I guess, in the media and communications world, and what motivated you to move into the NGO sector? Yeah, so a bit of a background about myself. I uh, grew up in Cairns in far north Queensland in the 70s and 80s, showing my age. And a very defining moment in my childhood was 
in the, I was about grade 10, so about 1986. There was lots of coverage in the local news, the Canter Post, on television, about Indigenous people, Aboriginal people who had come down from the Cape, going to the Kent Hospital, getting health appointments. And the stories were around Aboriginal people in the parks, on the Esplanade, and you know, causing a disturbance. And it really angered me because I knew the true story in terms of why Indigenous people were there. There was no places to stay, um, the history of colonisation. But, you know, the background was never provided in these news reports. And it was a defining moment for me because I, from that moment, wanted to be a journalist and a journalist that worked in commercial or mainstream media because I didn't see any Aboriginal people in the media um, on television or in the papers. And so it, I embarked on this career of journalism. I went to university. I studied journalism. I worked in journalism for quite some time in commercial and Indigenous media, across print, radio and television. And then I happened to get a job in government, Queensland government, in communications. And they wanted someone to work on trying to promote and get more Indigenous foster carers. And from that moment, I realised how poorly governments and um, agencies were communicating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as their audience. So I felt very strong about improving the way government, not-for-profits, anyone spoke to us, communicated with us. And then I was a humanitarian at heart. And so I really wanted to work for an agency that was aligned with my humanitarian values. Mm. When you joined this humanitarian organisation, what were some of the the things that you started experiencing there and um, what was your sort of position in the organisation? When I started this organisation, there was another Aboriginal person at the start in this department. It was quite a huge department, a mega department of about 160 people. And my role was to communicate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories, write stories about our work in this space. And this huge mega department worked in media, communications, fundraising, marketing. So it was quite huge. Um, and there was another Aboriginal person at the start, but they left into another role. So I was alone quite quickly in this big department and I felt it. It was quite isolating, the bombardment of questions on me, but also me questioning them um, and their behaviour, their communication. And the very first thing I did question straight away was, although my role was to write about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander projects and stories and our work, fundraising never uh, promoted it. So it was never promoted as a way to, you know, ask people to donate. I asked the fundraising team and said, well, why don't you? You promote every, everyone else and all these other projects and programs in our organisation. Why not our work here? And they said... Because the statistics show and their research shows that Australians don't want to donate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs. And that was really that was really hard to hear. I thought, well, why am I here? And I asked this many times and many times that same answer came back to me. And I pushed and pushed and I said, well, you don't know if you don't try. And I, I worked in this organisation for nine years and I think about by year seven of pushing, they eventually did put it in one of their tax components and it was amazingly received. Yeah, I mean, I think this also speaks to the sort of broader NGO landscape in so-called Australia where there is 
a really, I guess, uneasy relationship with thinking about, you know, white saviorism overseas versus a lack of understanding about how to engage properly with people on stolen land. Absolutely. They just continued that narrative. And by continuing that narrative, I questioned what was I doing in this organisation? Why did they want me there? Over that nine-year period, I was the only Aboriginal person in this department. Not once did they look at employing more Aboriginal people. And it wore me down. It really wore me down. And the way they treated me, they ignored me. You know, I felt like they belittled me. I would ask questions and I would explain. And it's like, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to explain because I didn't really understand why they didn't understand. It was really exhausting, depressing, and my mental health quite rapidly deteriorated. Mm. What you're talking about there as well sort of speaks to this uh, really toxic push-pull between positioning you as a black woman in the organisation as, you know, sort of valued employee because you are the only Aboriginal employee in that in that department, but then this process of tokenization, but also extracting extra labour from you to sort of educate people about things that go above and beyond your role. Seriously, all the time. The position that I entered into this organisation is the position that I remained after nine years. I did not move anywhere up the chain and I would never really ask but I was asked of extra labor absolutely I mean educating is exhausting educating non-indigenous people day in day out is really exhausting and you know I'd wake up and think put your armor on get ready because I don't know what's going to happen today I don't know what question will be asked I don't know what will be you know required of me and honestly some of the blows were really bruising and one really horrible moment which was the lowest of low was when a really horrible speech was written it contained extremely racist content I said how did this come about I was really shocked and angry disappointed so many emotions and they just couldn't answer me I took stress leave and when I returned I said we need to change this cannot happen again this is you know, toxic, this is damaging. And the question was, what should we do? And I said, we need anti-racism workshops. I will not hear any more about solutions to this racial violence. And I call it racial violence because of the way that it was impacting me and impacting my body, my mental health. And I said, no more cultural competency because that's not clearly working. No more diversity and inclusion because that's not working because I'm the only person here, you're not even diversifying. You're not including me. No more referring to the Reconciliation Action Plan because it's not about relationships. It's about racism. It's clear. So I said we need anti-racism workshop. It's the only way to tackle it. And initially it was agreed to and then I researched and found Indigenous X provided workshops. I said, this is fantastic. Please, can we implement this here? And they said there was no funding implement it and it's just not good enough. I was wondering if you could speak to the sort of use of a language and co-optation that the sector kind of employs to avoid having these challenging uh, conversations. I think even the word racism for a start it's racial violence. It's violent because as the victim and how it affected me physically, 
emotionally and mentally, it needs to be expressed as violence. It's not unconscious bias. It's not covert racism. It is absolutely racial violence. And I think white people have created these terminologies to make it sound less violent for what it is. So let's be clear. It is violent. It is racial violence. As an Aboriginal person, I, towards the end of my time there, it was very clear that I was distraught and, things, and I wasn't well. I was crying every day in meetings. Um, nobody was really that concerned. They said to me, what can we do? Okay, there was this question, what can we do? How can we help? And I said, stop being racist. But they just didn't know what that meant. And I said, well, I'm explaining that the way that you're behaving is having this impact on me, ignoring me, belittling me, not recognising me for my value, for my worth. These are all racist actions. Still, they weren't able to change that behaviour. Now, what happens in this situation is, for pretty much every black person that might be listening to this, is you then become fearful for your employment. Because as soon as you start to speak or white people see you having mental health issues, you know that's going to be a weapon to be used against you. So you really try to hold it in, and I really did try to hold it in. But ultimately, I was... Um, I was broken, and this is what needs to be spoken more about. Racial violence impacts people's health in lethal ways. I had to leave for my health, but it's not, it's not improved. I see two counsellors, and it's a daily work. I said I was the only Aboriginal person on the in this department, but if I was the only woman in a work place of 160 and there were 159 men and just one woman I don't think that would be allowed you know honestly but but they think that it's okay to have one Aboriginal person who has to uphold every element of communication who has to see every piece of communication has to ensure things are done correctly respectfully they didn't see any problem with that and yet over that period they you know they gave me accolades they got awards they sent me on leadership courses even and it made me think, I feel like I've stepped back in time. I, I really did. Because they were stealing my intellect. They were stealing a piece of me. And they were just patting me on the head going, you're a good black. Keep going. You know, here's a few awards. It was really, it's quite soul-destroying. I hear many times people go, oh, thank you. We've learnt so much, you know, in, in interactions. And I explain what happened. Oh, we've learnt so much. Well, what did I get out of it? Really, in this interaction, you say that you've learned, but I honestly don't believe that because we'll probably be back here in another couple of days talking about the same thing. But what, what do I get out of this interaction where you're learning? You're exhausting me. You're taking a piece of me. You are not giving back to me. There's, there's no reciprocal exchange. And I don't know, that's what reconciliation is supposed to be built on, but I certainly don't see that. There's many things that... I think about when I think about what's occurring to me and how I'm being ignored. I've made complaints. I spoke up. I did everything that I thought possible to be heard, to be understood, and behaviours never changed. I was gassed. Why did people double down on their behaviour against me? And I spoke my truth. I started to speak up and speak my truth more and more, and that felt good for me. And then suddenly I thought, but things are not changing. People are 
are people are not still hearing? And I and I was like, no, 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 no. And I saw Dr. Chelsea Bond say one day, healing comes not from suddenly being believed, but in being loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And in that moment, I realised people know what happened to me. People believe me. That's not disputed. But nobody believes that I should be loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And this is where we are as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. It's undisputed fact of what happened at colonisation, stealing our children, stealing our land, stealing our languages, stealing us, stealing our money. It continues daily. And the intergenerational trauma. But Australians, non-Indigenous people do not believe that we're worthy enough of justice. That's what it boils down to. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me to share your story. I know it's been really challenging and I just am very, very grateful to you for taking the time to, to speak with me about it. Thank you also for allowing me to have my voice. Thank you, Priya. That was Priya talking to Carrie Klim, uh, Kuku Yalanji and Coco Lama Lama woman, um, if you wanted to listen to the rest of that episode uh, where uh, they also speak to Chelsea uh, Wadigo, uh go to Women on the Line. The podcast is just on the 3CR website. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Joining us today on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast are two of the key players and also the co-authors of a new book that is the oral history of safe abortion access in Victoria. Um, On the 16th of July in 2001, a security guard was shot dead inside Melbourne's fertility control clinic. After years of harassment of women, um, their family members and staff outside reproductive health facilities uh, provided safe abortion access. And this violent catalyst, sorry, this violent act was the catalyst that set in train a nearly 20 year fight that led to the decriminalisation of abortion and introduction of safe access zones in Victoria. Joining us now will be Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea. It is an enormous privilege to have you both on the show this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us on, Amy. Um, Dr. Susie, first of all, congratulations on being recognised this year with the Order of Australia Medal. I'm guessing this is a very different trajectory to how you imagined your life would turn out, going by the way you opened your story in the book. Very <laughs> <laughs> much so. I mean, I think taking on the role at the fertility control clinic as the clinical psychologist there uh, was more like serendipity. It wasn't like I was applying for the job, um, you know, anxious to get that role. Uh, a friend uh, was leaving and asked me if I'd step in. 
And um, once I had a good chat about the role, then I was keen to get that role. It's been it's been a fabulously um, interesting and and uh, just such a rewarding area to work in. That's right, and th- and this. Uh, fight that you have, you know, serendipitously been jo- uh, drawn into has now gone over 25 years. What an incredible career. Um, and just the the ability to understand uh, what women go through when they come to reproductive health clinics. Of course, it's not just about uh, safe abortion access, but access to all sorts of facilities that women do need um, in often the most painful and traumatic times of their life. Oh, yes. Look, I couldn't get over the fact that here were women who, for nine out of ten of them, were clear about a decision to terminate a pregnancy um, or who were coming in for contraception or a pap test or a whole range of of um, women's health issues. But in order to actually get into the clinic, they were having to go through a gauntlet of extreme religious right people out the front harassing, blocking, showing ghastly images um, and trying to shame and intimidate women from coming in. And, of course, staff staff copped a bit too. Yeah. um, One quote that I... um that really struck me that um, I read that you said was that you said you believe it's a, it's, it's its own form of violence against women. Uh, you said that we like to think we're a modern society, but these attitudes to women can be unkind and disrespectful and very ingrained. And as someone who is a millennial, I think it is a good reminder that, um, you know, these attitudes still continue and it is a battle that, you know, that we have to fight daily. Look, unfortunately, that's so. Excuse me. Um, I guess I've been shocked after being a feminist back in the 70s at at uni um, to see how far we've come in some ways and how little we've come in others. And it's definitely a form of violence against women. Um, I couldn't really believe how tough it was to have our society, the powers that be, to just do the decent thing. And I don't understand, and I've had conversations with my lawyer, doctor, and Lizzie about this and many others, why men are not fighting for women. They all come from a mother. They they all have women who are sisters, friends. You know, they're women in their lives, but they don't seem to speak up for women. Yes, there are some men who are doing that, but not enough. And so I was, I just couldn't get over. Why is it so hard to point out that women are being completely disrespected here. Um, their health and mental health uh, is being harmed, and yet we're not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about the shared struggle, um, and I mean that's in so many aspects of life, but especially when it comes to reproductive health, it is still a shared struggle. Um, Lizzie, the most interesting thing about um, the um, various court battles and legislative battles in the book that I found was that the case that you were on with the fertility control clinic, that case was actually lost in the first instance, but you didn't take that as a means of defeat. In fact, it proved that, you know, the clinic had done everything they possibly could to solve that problem themselves. Exactly. I think it's really important to remember this, that um, litigation can be a really powerful tool for social change, but it's done 
it, it performs that job only really when it's done in partnership with people who are advocating for these issues on the front line outside the courtroom. And so Susie's a perfect example of that, someone who struggled and organised various women, showed up, did the right thing, agitated wherever she could. Eventually, she found lawyers who were prepared to represent her on the terms that she wanted to be represented, which I think is so critically important. And I, I was a member of that team with others. And, and we took the court to the, the we took the case to the Supreme Court, but of course you're right, we were unsuccessful, and it's obviously devastating. Like you don't want to bring a court case and lose. Uh, I just want to make that 100 percent clear. But I do think it was a really important step in the process because what it demonstrated was that the fertility control clinic had sought to do everything it possibly could about this nuisance. It had taken um, the Melbourne City Council to court and said, "You need to fix this problem, this problem of harassment at the front of the clinic. It's within the, the your power to do so." and you've elected not to. And the court endorsed that that conduct of the Melbourne City Council. And that meant, really, we'd reached a dead end. And the only alternative was legislative reform to introduce safe access zones. So it set that up. And then we found allies in Parliament, Fiona Patton being one, Jill Hennessy being another, and eventually a cross-party coalition that was prepared to take that legislative step. So court cases can be really powerful, even sometimes when you lose. But that's really only if you've got if you're doing it in strategic partnership with those who are affected. And the laws didn't really go uncontested for that long either. Um, in 2016, two anti-abortion activists were convicted. Um, under legislation both here in Victoria and under similar laws in Tasmania. And so this is what led to the High Court decision in 2019, I believe. That's right. So eventually when we'd introduced these laws um, through an act of parliament, they were challenged by these harassers, these anti-choice fanatics, and that made its way all the way to the High Court. And there's obviously... um, one of the things people might know about the Constitution is that there's an implied right of freedom of political communication. We don't actually have many rights in our Constitution or in our law generally that are enforceable, but that's one. And so the court was asked to negotiate what the the distinction is between those two. Can you limit what people can do uh, outside an abortion clinic to protect staff and patients? Is that an incursion of freedom of political communication? And the court endorsed our view that harassment of staff and patients was unacceptable, that it doesn't mean it's a limit on your capacity to speak freely and to have a a liberal democracy, um, and that those two things are compatible. And I think it was a really good endorsement of our strategy, putting women's rights at the centre of this discussion and the harm that they suffer when they're harassed by people accessing a lawful health service that's unacceptable and people shouldn't be able to do that. And it's not really freedom of political communication to claim that you're somehow protesting lawfully in doing so. That actually it's about women's rights to access healthcare without discrimination, without harassment, and the court endorsed that view. Uh, Susie, this book I I also found really important. I alluded to it earlier, Um, not only as a history of the fight that you both shared, uh, but as a document that educates younger generations about how hard fought these freedoms are and how tenuous the link might be to make sure that they continue to be available to us. Um, Something I realised is that I certainly wasn't taught about any of this at school. Um, I, you know, I went to a pretty okay school, I thought. But when I, when I think about what I learned about abortion access generally, um, I think there's a tendency to assume Australia is or never was that bad compared to US-centric discussions. I'd only ever heard about Dr. George Tiller, for example. Um, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that before 2015, I didn't actually know that anyone had been killed outside abortion clinics. Um, so 
Is this something that you feel is really important that we educate further generations about this history? Absolutely. I'm just delighted to hear you say that you you found that it, it raised your consciousness. I yes. think that term consciousness raising needs to come back into vogue. Um, <laughs> I'd really like to see all of our politicians and, in fact, oh, every every person do gender studies 101. <laughs> um, because, look, even though I've been so involved in in this whole process, there are still occasions where I say something and I think, oh, my God, I think that was feminist. I think that was sexist. Or, or oh, I think that was just being racist. And we've all been washed in this same tub of misogyny. Um, you know, if you want to further your education, have, have a look at the book Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez as well. Um, that's just frightening the way women are excluded in every facet of our life, that the world has been... It's a world made by men for men. And so that's where I think having women in positions like yours, um, having women in Parliament, having three women sitting on the High Court, one who was the High Court Justice, it is just so crucial because then women's perspective is heard... Um, women's voices are heard. And so I think I think that's been a generational, very positive generational change, that there are more women in positions of power. But as we've seen in federal politics, you know, many of the Liberal women have not spoken up, or if they have, it's to take the party line, which is at the moment an incredibly sexist um, line. Yeah, that, that's something else I was going to say. Like, I, I'm sure this will be mentioned quite a few times in discussions about your book, but it does seem like an extremely timely book um, in the in terms of the conversations we're currently having about women in positions of power, women in federal parliament, um, the truth telling that has to be done now to be honest about not only our history, but what women have gone through in order to be able to get through to the next stage, which is um, remedying the harm that's being done and also making sure it doesn't happen to other women. Yes, I just hope it doesn't take as long because I think, (laughs) and I hope that our book inspires women to keep at it because the cost um, to someone like Brittany Higgins, the cost to speaking out for women is huge and does, it's still taking far too long for people to just do the decent thing. Um, Lizzie, one more um, question I had was that um, in in terms of your own career, I, I know this case, uh, even, even as we were discussing before, even the initial case being a loss, it's, it was still so instructive for your career. Um, mm. And being a lawyer, sometimes it does um, – there is – an onus or like a responsibility sometimes that you feel that as someone with that power to help people that you Mm. feel like you need to do that as much as you possibly can in whatever means that you can um, to use that for change that means for the better good of everyone else. Yeah, uh, well, this is one example where it's been a really rewarding experience. I think um, a lot of people think lawyers' lives are um, very busy, maybe quite boring, very dry and dull, and this is the, this experience for me was the opposite. I do think social movements generally have a 
lot to learn from this example about how to use litigation. Sometimes I think in um, struggles for social change where we think that courts will solve our problems and, mm. and I think that can sometimes be uh, an incorrect assumption and we have to think really carefully about it. But I also don't think the courts um, are without, you know, important opportunities to advocates trying to make change and this is a good example of it. I found it just really instructive even just talking to Susie about this, what she as a client expected from her lawyer and what she received in legal advice over the years and how it changed when um, women particularly who were interested in listening to the concerns of the fertility control clinic and then articulating in, them in law, how, how much that changed the dynamic of what she was experiencing as a client of a legal, of a, in a legal case and a participant in the legal system. So... Uh, that's one of the reasons why I feel really passionately about this story and why I think this is like an instructive resource guide for people who, who are interested in, in litigation as a source of social change. It really gives you an idea of how to do this well, I think. Um, and there'll be successes and failures along the way, but the relationship between lawyers and clients is one that ought to be uh, based on respect. It shouldn't be dictatorial where lawyers are treated as the expert and know best about everything, but you can learn a lot from your clients as well. So that's the idea of this book, I think, as well, to be a documentation of a really important bit of history where women coming together organised to change the world in, a, in an amazing way, but also for lawyers who are interested in this topic to have a guide to what, you know, successful public interest litigation over the course of kind of 10 years, really, um, can achieve and, and what, what secrets are to that kind of success. I think if I could just add something there, Evie, it was incredibly hard for me to um, find the right people. And when I contacted, when I eventually contacted the Human Rights Law Centre, Emily Howie there was just um, right onto it. She totally got where I was coming from. And then the Human Rights Law Centre uh, approached Morris Blackburn and Morris Blackburn lawyers very generously um, conducted this uh, case pro bono. And so even the fact that they were doing this pro bono, that they really had their heart in it, um, was just such a boost to me. And I felt so much more confident that we were heading in the right direction. Everything was so organised. And all of the evidence that we gathered was accepted by the court unchallenged. All of that evidence we then could channel to politicians at the appropriate time. Of course, we didn't know that's what we were going to be doing. We were <laughs> wanting to win. Um, but it was, just, uh, it, it was just wonderful to have those power brokers of human rights and protest rights, I might say, in our mm. corner. Yeah, just, uh, just the... I, I think it's such a positive force, Um that I think can encourage women. Uh, I think sometimes it, it it is hard not to be a bit despondent um, when you know you're reminded of how broad um, the kind of uh, oppressions and the kind of thing you know the the things that happen against women. Um, and it's hard not to feel helpless sometimes. But it is nice to have that reminder that yes, there is a way out, and it it is a collective effort. Um, to come out of that and to make the connections that you did in this case um, and, uh, you know, the entire fight that happened and that, you know, you have relationships and connections now for future fights as well. Yes, well, um, many many of the uh, political connections and with the women's groups, um, they actually harked back to the abortion decrim 
in 2008. So we were able to build on those, although Fiona Patton was someone shiny and new who'd come into Parliament, and that also was such a positive. She was an independent, she, and she was able to run with this. She um, had the energy. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, oh, she's a very special person um, and, and was pretty much adored on both sides of the house. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing to say is that uh, that's an important point, that the connections that you've built up serve a purpose later on. Like One thing I think that Susie and I would both agree on is that in many ways we've got safe access zones. You know, abortion's been largely decriminalised across the entire country, except Western Australia, and safe access zones are in place in lots of parts of the country, which is an incredible achievement. But there are still problems with access and um, how people who are living outside of metro areas can get in and, and access abortion. And, you know, there's someone like Amanda Stoker who's in federal politics who professes to be anti-choice. So these struggles, that kind of neural network that you build up of people who are connected to this issue because you've spoken to them, you've worked with them, you've, you know, gone through a difficult process of legislative reform, you know, you've, you've taken the lead, as Susie did, in, in um, challenging or defending these laws in the High Court. Um, that serves a purpose later on as well as we start to prosecute arguments around access and we make sure we defend the rights that we've gained. So it really is an important job to try and diversify this movement, bring in lots of different people so that the rights are better protected in future and can be built upon for subsequent generations as well. I I think, Evie, it's interesting in uh, part of our story because of its longevity, which I wish it it hadn't been (laughs) this long, but but one of the positives of that was that... um, uh, Barrister, uh, well, she's now a judge, but Chris Walker was part of our team when we took when we sued Melbourne City Council in the Supreme Court. And then when it reached the point of the High Court challenge, Chris was the Solicitor General who led the evidence in the High Court. So she was all over it. And and again, when we um, Jill Hennessy was the Health Minister uh, who brought in the safe access zones. But by the time it got to the High Court, she was the Attorney General. So she she was the one representing Victoria um, and with Chris representing her. And so I I just sat back and and enjoyed it because I knew we were in such excellent hands. Yes, and now she's um and now she's uh, been just recently appointed as a judge to um, the Court of Appeal as well. Mm. It, it, it is it's really again it's just remarkably positive and affirming to see such powerful advocates um being in these positions because it does mean that you know it does feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel in a way mm. Mm. absolutely thank you so much um Dr. Susie and Lizzie for speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, if anyone would like to read the book, it launches this week in all good bookstores. Um, there will be a launch this at the end of this week, I believe. And I hope to see you both um, everywhere talking about this book and the history as well. Thank you so much again. Thanks so Thanks. much for having us on, Avi. Thanks. We will be right back after this quick announcement. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. 
Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. The time is 8.24. We're going to go to a track now, and this is by um, NAM-based singer-songwriter Jess Locke, who released her uh, latest album, Don't Ask Yourself Why, earlier this year. Um, And this track is called uh, Tell Me I'm Okay, and it's the first one of the album. I'm having trouble breathing I swear this air's got no oxygen But it's thick with the stink of a hundred cigarettes And I think that I'll be better off if I just hold my breath So I hold my breath, hold my tongue Much too much for no one For no reason other than I'm terrified of being wrong No, I don't trust the air in here And I'm sick with the smell of a thousand dying ideas We used to breathe underwater Did we ever care for each other? Tell me I'm real Tell me I'm good Tell me I'll never ever be misunderstood I'm not having trouble sleeping in I think I'll sleep through the second coming It's better on TV Even better in
is um, Just Lock with Tell Me I'm Okay, which is the first track of her new album. Uh, we've come to the end of our show. Um, it was a big one. Mm. <laughs> um, so we might just quickly go through what we covered today. Um, Carnegie? So we uh, spoke with Liz Walsh from the Victorian Socialists earlier this morning about safe injecting rooms in Footscray. Uh, we also played some audio from uh, a fantastic episode of Women on the Line with Priya, um, so please check that out again. And just before we spoke to Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea about safe access to abortion in Victoria. Uh, up next is Accent of Women, and make sure you tune into Breakfast every other day this week at 7 a.m. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.